0: So what do you actually do then? So I worked for the city, as Brett said, and uh, I didn't necessarily take training that's like in school to get me prepped for a, a career in the city. I started with accounting, so I have a degree in accounting, and then I worked for in an like uh, for an oil company for a year in an accounting type setting, and then I decided that I didn't want to sit in an office for like all of my career or so I thought at that time, you know, which in retrospect wasn't uh, like, I kind of regret the decision, but I still got the degree and I still got that training. So that was good. So because I was scared about sitting in an office so much, I went into engineering and that was geological engineering. So more mining related. And then I worked in the mining sector for a few years, like three, four, five years, I think. And then at that time, like towards the end of that stint, I could sense that there was going to be a downturn in mining activity. And there kind of was. So I kind of got lucky. Like I was working for a big consultant at the time. And I was like, um, you know, they had a lot of employees. And I didn't see any big projects coming down the pipe. I was like, what's Like I could kind of see the writing on the wall. So then I applied for a job at the city. Just because it's pretty uh, safe relatively. Maybe not as interesting or not as interesting for me. But definitely safe and then like, you know, decent money. You and know you got what the I mean? stability. Stability as well. Yeah. So I manage water and sewer and roadway rehab work. So it's just like all the all the contractor, all the closures that you see throughout the city, a lot of them are because of me. Or somebody that I work with. Yeah. So anytime you see one, you can just like Damn it, Andy! <laughs> Come on. Yeah, or call me. Yeah, get me on speed dial. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. So, what'd you do with the mining sector? Uh, so I, so I worked for a couple different companies. I worked for SNC-Lavalin, then I worked for AMAC. So mainly, it was tailings management, design, and construction. So, if you think about the mining lifecycle, do you want me to just give you a quick like overview? Broad Absolutely. Overview okay. So. If I'm a geologist, let's say, and I want to search for gold, you've pictured like a panhandle or something back in like the Klondike gold rush, right? Trying to find stuff on the surface. It's not like that today necessarily, but it's not totally dissimilar. So you might, a prospector might find like some sort of like outcropping of hard rock on the surface in an area that they own, ideally, because if you don't own the land, then you can't do anything with it, the mineral rights. So under, what's underneath the surface. So you might find evidence of something like that, of gold. And then if you find something, some sort of evidence, then you're going to perform more studies. So you might fly an airborne geomagnetic survey. So there's that's like just simply an airplane with a magnet in It, it flies a grid pattern over the land that you own, again, ideally. It'll pick up magnetic anomalies in the ground, in the geology, and different densities of rock, will give different signals back. So then you can kind of confirm what you found on surface. And then once you have even more evidence to say that there might be gold in the ground going back to the, back to that original example, then you're going to want to send a drill rig out there and drill, actually drill down to where you think that ore body is, that gold is. And then if you find evidence like actual gold in the ground, then it's like, okay, good. We found something right. And, But then it obviously doesn't stop there. You need to have a certain amount of gold in the ground to make it economically feasible or viable to actually mine the stuff. And then it needs to be mineable as well. So it's like that's when you get into sort of mine engineering. So you can have like a pile of gold in the ground, but it could be surrounded by like non-ideal rock, like soft rock, which is just very expensive to mine or just not even feasible at all. Because you could try and mine, like go down into the ground, blast stuff away, but you wouldn't have like a safe passageway to get the gold if it's an underground mine, for example. Like everything would just cave in and it would just be way too expensive to mine it. So you have to figure out if it's mineable. You have to figure out if there's stuff there. And then once you do, then you can build a mine. Then once you start bringing that ore out of the ground, you need to process it. And with the case of gold, there's like, it's a pretty intense... Like, environmentally, or you could consider it environmentally invasive, I suppose, because you can use cyanide and other harsh chemicals to process this stuff. And then, so the byproduct of, so you get bring the ore out of the ground, and then you, you process it. You separate it into your product that you want to sell, so the gold, gold bars, right, the bling. And then the byproduct is tailings. And that's essentially the same for any product that you want to get out of the ground. So whether it's like potash, silver, gold, precious metals, um, lithium is big right now because of electric vehicles. Like it's, there's different processes for each, but it's similar in the in the um, in the sense that you got to get it out of the ground, you got to process it, and then there's going to be a product and a byproduct. And The byproduct is tailings, and then depending on the byproduct, like how risky it is to the environment and depending on the country that you live in. So for example, Canada has fairly good regulations, like environmental processes, depending on the perspective. Like it's good from the perspective of like citizens of that country and preserving the environment. It slows down the process sometimes if you're trying to build a mine and it's more expensive. Whereas a developing country, you might... The, like regulations there may be no regulations or very little regulations or lax regulations and you can go through that process quicker tailings management is essentially just like making a safe spot for that byproduct and making sure that you can manage it for as long as it's a hazard or a risk to the environment or to people around you it can literally be a pond and you may hear about it in the news sometimes like tailings dams or these pond dams will break sometimes because people don't monitor them like there's a big one um like they're they happen all the time unfortunately but there was a big one i think in like eastern europe a few years ago and it was an iron ore tailings facility and this dam broke and it was like it looked more horrible than it was because it was like this red orangey color from that's like from the byproduct. You know, because like iron is is red, like that's the color that it has. So it's like this big red river of tailings, like fluid essentially, just like flowing where it shouldn't be flowing. So that's more or less what I did. Like I was familiar with the whole process and, you know, familiar with uh, the whole life cycle, but tailing, like what I did for those companies was more tailings management related. So like at the back end of the mining process okay so they've already discovered it they're starting to process it now the the tailings are left and then what do you do to manage it then well once you so you have to design the tailings facility you got to build it and then if you're managing it properly like in canada uh, like any country if you're doing it properly you need to it's pretty simple i mean you need to to inspect the dikes (laughs) inspect the berms make sure that they're uh structurally sound you know, you can look for, like, different evidence of it not being structurally sound, like cracking and whatnot. But it's just, like, having a a management plan which can consist of inspection, instrumentation, uh, installation, for example. Like, going to potash. Like, if you see those big pink piles of, like, what looks like salt, you know, like, on the countryside when you're driving by them, that's tailings as well. That's just, like, potash um byproduct essentially the stuff that they can't sell and you have big huge massive piles of it and you don't want them to collapse so you can install instrumentation in those piles so like nutrient mosaic bhp is another big company they're gonna be like they don't have a mine yet here but bhp doesn't but you need to install this instrumentation so like essentially it can be just a whole Like you drill a big long hole into the pile and then you have an instrument in there that monitors whether or not the pile is staying stable or not. So you can monitor that in real time. Really? So what does this instrument measure? So it's called a a slope inclinometer. So there's instrumentation clusters that you install, so you'll install a piezometer, which measures essentially like static hydrostatic head, so pressure like water pressure in the ground. And the slope inclinometer just measures whether or not something is moving in that hole. So a more local example, you know, the river bank along the South Saskatchewan river has been failing at certain times over the past like hundred years. So the city installs instrumentation clusters at certain points throughout the river on the, on the river bank at high risk areas. And will constantly monitor, like I don't do that, but somebody else does in the city, um, will monitor whether that riverbank is shifting and by how much. And like there's going to be natural shifting from time to time. It's just you don't want it to be too big over too quick of a period. What um, happens if it's too big with the potash pile? Then or the tailings of the potash? Well, then at that point, like working for the consultants at that time, like we would be monitoring certain areas of the pile and then we would make recommendations like if we saw some sort of movement that we didn't like or that we thought that was risky for whatever reason we would make a recommendation to the to the mining company to either start depositing tailings somewhere else and not make that pile so big so it's not that complicated right like you can figure it out it's not rocket science it's just like there's a lot of Same thing with the city. It's like none of it is rocket science. It's just a lot of little details. You know what I mean? But they add up to one big picture. That's right. So you have that pressure sensor. Yeah. And then this inclinometer and they work in unison. Yeah, because it's like you, yeah, if you, like, like you said, it's like if you receive data from the slope inclinometer, it may or may not be a bad sign, but if you take that data in combination with the pressure data that you were talking about from the piezometer, then that creates a bigger picture. It paints a bigger, like more comprehensive picture of what's going on, and then you can make a recommendation or take the proper action at that point. So, what kind of yeah. pressure change would you see? So, for example, as you if you installed a piezometer into just normal ground, you would see the result would be just like pressure from the groundwater. But as you put a bunch of weight on that ground as you load it up you're going to see increased pressure from that from the the tailings. mass of the yeah from the yeah. mass of whatever you put onto that area of the ground so that's going to change the equation essentially so that increased mass on the ground may influence groundwater it may influence groundwater movements depending on the geology below the tailings you know what i mean so it's okay. like so it's like water can move move through granular material like sand more easily than it can through clay. Well, it doesn't really move through clay at all. So that's like impermeable versus permeable stuff. So again, depending on, and that's why you don't want to put tailings kind of going off on a sidetrack. You don't want to put tailings like there's ideal places to have a tailings management area. You don't want to put your tailings on, say for example, an ancient riverbed, which has happened in the past. And I won't say where, but that has happened. And then there's been, um, you know, like years and years ago when it was, when the data wasn't there to say like, no, you shouldn't do that or it's going to be a bad thing in 50 years. But now in the past, like 10, 20 years, we know that that's a bad thing. And there's had to be remediation activities after the fact that cost the mining company like a lot of money to make sure that, say, for example, if you're building something on granular soil where a contaminant can travel through it quite quickly or more quickly than like rubber or clay or something that's impermeable, relatively impermeable, then you need to mitigate that somehow. And it's better to do that mitigation and design and construction at the front end of a project, not 50 years down the road (laughs) after there's a risk of contamination to the environments and people, but also it costs a pile of money to do that. An ounce of... Prevention is better than the pound and cure. Yes, exactly. So then what's the consequence if you're building over that underground river? Well, so then the contaminants, once it gets, it gets into some sort of permeable soil where there often is groundwater, it can contaminate groundwater supplies and then it can get into river systems. And that's kind of the worst case scenario. Um, you know, and depending on how hazardous the contaminant is will dictate you know, like how much of a bad effect it does have on the environment, obviously. So like going back to the gold example, cyanide, that would be very bad getting into the river system or groundwater system. Salt may not be as bad, but it's still bad. It's it's still going to have a, a negative effect on essentially everything, right? So, And then what do they do to fix that problem? So there's... So like there's a bunch of different ways that you can fix it, but I mean, if you if you go back to whether something, like if it's sand, if there's a bunch of sand that this contaminant is leaching into, you can just surround the whole permeable area with something impermeable. So you can essentially install a big curtain of something that's impermeable. But you need to go down a sufficient depth to make sure that you intercept all of that permeable layer. You know what I mean? So you put just a shell around it, but underground. Yep. Yep. So you dig like, essentially you just dig a huge trench around the entire site. And this has happened before. And this is a remediation method. You just dig a huge trench around the whole site and then you install something that is impermeable. So it's usually like some sort of clay um, mixture with like other like cementitious type stuff something that like hardens in place, you know, yeah. and that water can't easily or contaminants can't easily move through. So it's like they can move around that mine site that has the sand or the permeable stuff, the permeable materials. But then as, as soon as it hits that curtain, that trench of material around the whole site it can't leave the site or at least that's the theory. So, and that's been a solution and it's like a common solution. It's just hella expensive oh really yeah and then the, yeah that's potentially the least of your problems going back to like the actual contaminant getting out into the environment yeah. and the water system so yeah. so how long do you have to keep the tailings there until they're neutralized uh oh like on a tailings management site or just anywhere let's go with on the site first yeah so with salt with like potash for example we have a lot of potash mines around here well, we have a lot of like everything but um potash is like essentially the byproduct is salt, another type of salt or brine, water, salt water, really heavily salted water. You essentially got to let that evaporate, let the water evaporate over time, and then you'll just be left with salt piles. And then you can just kind of scoop that up and put it into a dry storage area, and then it's relatively low risk. Yeah. So then you just leave it in that storage area? Uh, Yeah. I mean, there's different things that you do with it at that point, but you can essentially leave it because it's low risk at that point oh it's Um, not going to contaminate the environment yeah there's less of a risk of it because if it's brine wherever the water goes the salt goes whereas if it's just dry salt as long as you store it in a in a good area where water can't get at it again or it can't go back into a like a soluble form and get into the groundwater system then it's way less risk whereas like but and that happens kind of over the course of say like a hundred years, one to 200 years, because it's like, it takes a while for these brine ponds to evaporate. And during production, you're continually pumping new brine into the ponds and it just keeps going and going and going, right? So the ponds slowly evaporate over the years and decades. But if the mine is in production, you keep adding to the ponds. It isn't until that mine is closed that The tailings management area, like, that process continues on, but those ponds need to evaporate and the tailings need to become to a sufficiently low-risk state that you can abandon and close the mine. Which is 1 to 200 years later. Yeah, generally for potash, yeah. So it's like, it still takes a long time. Oh, man. Whereas, like, nuclear waste... Obviously, is a different thing. But when you think about it, it's like, and I don't know nuclear that well or uranium. So I'm definitely not an expert in this area. With nuclear waste, like you can almost think of ore, like uranium ore down in the ground right now. That's radioactive stuff. You take it out of the ground, you process it. Then you're left with like a good product that you put in nuclear reactors or whatever to generate power and electricity. And then you're left with the waste, which isn't nuclear fuel. You have to do something with that. So as long as it's encased in some sort of like concrete or something that doesn't allow that radioactivity to be a risk to people, again, the environment and people and whatever else, then it's probably going to be okay. And then you can even like bury it underground where it came from. You know what I mean? I don't know if people do that, but but you're um, able to, cause it can be dormant in that encased state. Yeah. It just doesn't pose a risk or it's, it doesn't pose any more risk to people or the environment that it, than it did prior to them prior to them process to prior to them taking it out of the ground and processing it so it's it's kind of one of those like car crash versus airplane disaster scenarios you know it's like you think of nuclear energy you think of chernobyl and three mile island and those were like obviously huge disasters like you've seen the show right no okay but anyways it's a show on netflix chernobyl but um People focus on those disasters, and it's like focusing on a plane disaster, but airplane flying, flight, is still safer than driving a car. And when you look at all the data as a whole, nuclear energy is actually a pretty safe and viable option for electricity generation. Oh, so it's much safer, but we just focus on the big ones. Yeah. The big big accidents. The big accidents, yeah. So what would be the relating car crashes in this scenario? Just... Operating, looking at many of the hundreds of operating nuclear facilities all over the world right now. Like, obviously, Fukushima is another airplane crash kind of disaster, but wasn't nearly as bad as Chernobyl. And like, Fukushima was built in the 60s and they built it to withstand like massive tsunamis. But just because that tsunami was so big, So massive, they didn't quite build it big enough. So you could just look at operating nuclear facilities all over the world, and then you could just paint a picture like how many accidents have there been or deaths in the nuclear industry compared to, say, oil and gas. Oh, so the oil and gas are those car crashes that we're not reporting. Yes, yeah. So it's like oil and gas are just mining anything else. Like there's accidents all the time, and you hear about them here and there. But there isn't really one disaster that sticks in your mind as much as like a Chernobyl or Fukushima does in the yeah. nuclear industry. Because it's not like that a high magnitude. Yeah, but there's accidents all the time. And if you look at the sum of all of those and like put them in a spreadsheet, you would see that oil, the oil and gas industry is more dangerous, I believe, than the nuclear industry. Or they have more incidences yeah. than the nuclear industry. And then you can start to compare like, um, but, and there's different effects. You know what I mean? Cause it's like carbon emissions from the oil and gas industry is an issue, but there's no carbon emission or very little with nuclear. Once the mine is actually operating, there's obviously oil and gas or carbon emissions through the mining process, like getting the uranium out of the ground and processing it. But there's very little carbon uh, emissions when you're actually generating electricity with with uranium or nuclear fuel versus burning natural gas or burning coal to yeah. generate electricity. Yeah. So you've already paid the admission, and now you're, you're good to go. Yeah, oh, coming what? out of the gates, you're kind of like neck and neck. But once you're burning that fuel, nuclear wins from the carbon emission perspective. Yeah. But then you look at other energy generation type methods. It's like hydropower, for example. There's going to be a lot of carbon emissions building the mo- or building the dam and building the turbines that the water flows through to create the electricity. but then you're also displacing like huge amounts of land and potentially people again maybe not in Canada but in third world countries or other countries they might just be like, get out of the way we're building a we're building a dam. you got to move. That's just the people, right? And then there's animals and plants and whatever else that you displace by creating, like, a huge reservoir behind the dam. All those habitats get... Yeah. So, uh, again, it's, like, it's a balance, right? There's pros and cons, cost, benefits. And it's, like, I'm not saying dams and hydroelectricity is bad. It's just there's... The, the, like, media will paint a certain picture of what's good and what's bad until you actually look into the research and data do you the want. research and then kind of pick your poison. Yeah. Cause either way, something's going to happen. You just yep. got to see what you're willing to pay for it. Yeah. It's like taking a drug, like not an illegal drug, of course, but like, it has side effects. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's going to be a cost benefit thing that you need to exercise that you need to go through in your head. And you like, you may do the minimum and just see what other people are saying and go with their opinion. Or you might Ideally, do a little bit more research and look at the data and figure it out for yourself, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So you can kind of compare those two. Yeah. Yeah. When you're designing those tailing management facilities, what stood out to you when you started doing that? I would say like when I started doing it, I was just interested in mining in general as well as like the finance part of it you know like financing a mine which is just like massive amounts of capital and money which is crazy in and of itself but I would say just the environmental components was pretty interesting like I liked the mining aspect more so like getting ore out of the ground at the start and the processing of it but I learned that through that process like on surface filtering out the byproduct from the products is pretty interesting as well and then there's other huge processes that need to be followed with managing the byproducts so the tailings as well so i at first wasn't that interested but as i learned more found that it was just it was another process in and of itself that you could learn so much about you know and stays around for going back to the potash example like maybe 100 200 years and you need to manage that appropriately Or in the case of like nuclear fuel, spent nuclear fuel or nuclear waste. It's like thousands of years with like half-lives and things like that. So. So when you got into it, you didn't know that it would last that long. Yeah, I just, I didn't know the amount of work and time and resources spent on just the byproduct, just the tailings. I thought like naively thought that like oh well, once it's out of the ground and you get that product it's just like yeah, oh, you're kind of good to go right money trains rolling now yeah like i knew there was something with some level of management in terms of like the environmental components after the fact but didn't realize that it was so robust in you know yeah a properly managed and regulated country like which is still a- there's still issues here yeah. but yeah more less issues here than in a developing country yeah because they're just not going to It's not that they don't care, but it's just they don't have the money and resources to care about it. It's just like they need to to get the product out of the ground to generate electricity for their people. They need to create that product to get the jobs, but then they may not have the money or they couldn't raise the funds to properly manage the site after the fact or have as good of environmental standards as other countries with more money. Yeah, it was kind of a cross that bridge when we get there process, but they needed it to stay alive. Yeah. It's just like, and same thing with safety too. It's like you go to a developing country, safety standards just aren't going to be as high as they are here for a variety of reasons. Cause like here it's like, like, yes, the, the end goal is less injuries and less fatalities, but it's also like a liability and litigation exercise at times as well. So it's like you got lawyers going around. I like lawyers, but it's just like, (laughs) but it's like you got this whole industry of litigation where you're scared to get sued. And if you spend a little bit more money on safety, you hope and like the goal is of course to decrease injuries and, and people dying, but there's also going to be that element of decreasing your liability. And if you spend a little bit of money to have another, process or piece of paper to fit to fill out before you do something, then that like that's that's time and effort and resources spent by the company, but that's gonna decrease your risk yeah. and decrease your potential liability of being sued. Yeah. You know? So it's this That'll whole like you down. Yeah. So yeah. it's like this whole thing, right? You don't want to get shut down due to like some safety issue. You don't want to have to shut down From like a management or executive perspective, it's just like, yeah, you don't want injuries and deaths, but you also don't want to shut down your operation for any extended period because of a liability issue. Right. So it's like... So so with with Canada, it's sort of, if you don't have time to do it right, when are you going to have time to do it again? Yeah. So it's like you mess it up, government shuts you down or the Ministry of Health and Safety shuts you down for a certain time period, you're not making money, your business goes belly up. Yeah, what have you seen for shutdowns that have happened? Uh well, like with in Saskatchewan for example, like there'll be like if there's and across Canada and the US, like if there's some sort of serious injury or like it, like there's a chart that you can look at. It's like environmental damage, damage to physical property, damage to humans of like injuries, you know, deaths, <laughs> um, you know, and depending on the severity, that will essentially prompt a certain level of penalty for whoever's doing the work, whether it's like a mine operator or a contractor. So you could get fined. You could have to shut down work for days, weeks, whatever. It's essentially until whoever is responsible for what happened can show whether it's the... Show that it's preventable now. Yeah, show that it's preventable and show that that they're taking steps to prevent it in the future, like through some sort of corrective action. So it's like they'll do an incident investigation and th- like, it, and this should work the same way for any sort of incident, but you do an incident investigation, you figure out what the causes were, like what happened, something hit somebody, what were the root causes, like what was it like a process wasn't in place, was the process in place but it wasn't followed and communi- or communicated, were people not properly educated and then once they drill down to that root cause, like you can just, you can keep like, peeling layers of the onion back if you do it well enough and once you dig down and find that final cause then you can come up with some sort of corrective action and that should also be on your incident investigation oh we're talking about like pieces of paper again it's like (laughs) so it's like it's boring in the sense that okay like did they find the proper root cause what's the corrective action it's just like do they have something okay you can get back to work okay so you isolate that root cause and then you can either modify or eliminate it yeah you try to yeah obviously try to eliminate it if it can't be eliminated then you have some sort of like control to mitigate it or minimize the the probability of it happening I gotcha. yeah I so you it know. can range you know it goes back to that severity thing it's like when the titanic sank like you know there's like huge incident investigations that go on about that but there's obviously like multiple causes and multiple issues that happened there that took many many years to actually figure out what actually happened and develop corrective actions from that disaster so you can think of something like smaller on a day-to-day basis like somebody goes into a trench when they shouldn't have been in a trench and something may not have even happened but that risk was there so that's technically an incident as well it's like well it's a near miss but you would have to, because the risk, like some the potential of somebody dying was there. Then that's treated with like a lot more severity than dropping a hammer on your toe or something, right? You know, that's an incident too. Somebody got injured. You need to prevent those things from happening. But if somebody goes into a trench, there's clearly like a bigger underlying issue going on with like management potentially not educating their staff. Cause hope isn't a strategy in that, Scenario: You just got lucky. Yeah, it's like you. What if it was like the ground was like wet after a day of a storm or something and they went into the trench and then it collapsed or something? Like maybe it's been dry for weeks and the the trench is fine. They can just go in and out, but they're still not following the standards. They're getting complacent or something.
1: Yeah, I gotcha. You
0: got to follow the small rules too. Yeah. Somebody may not have gotten hurt. They just went into a trench they weren't supposed to go into. But somebody isn't communicating, educating educating their staff properly. Whereas if somebody drops a hammer, it's like somebody just made a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Accidents happen. So what do you do with the city then with the roadways? Um, so we like we essentially hire consultants to go around the whole city and figure out what and this isn't what I do, but it's part of what I do. So we figure out the condition of all the roads and like the water system, water distribution system is more difficult to get an accurate representation of its condition because you can't, you can't dig down to every pipe and you can't inspect. You can't put like a robot or a camera inside a pressurized pipe. You can put robots and cameras in storm sewers and figure out if they're okay. But with the water distribution system, you got to rely on historical information like when was it built? What material was was it built with? How many water main breaks have happened recently? And then you can kind of paint a picture again of their condition. And then you can prioritize where you need to replace pipes or where you need to do rehab. And then you figure out how much of that priority list that you can get done annually based on a budget that you have, which comes from taxpayers and property tax and whatnot. And whatever, like whatever other funding sources. So there could be like provincial and federal stimulus that the city, like municipalities may receive. So you figure out what money you have to get a certain percentage of the priority list done. You get a list of that per year and then you separate that out out into contracts that you think that a contractor would be interested in doing and then you get them to bid on it. Generally speaking, the low bid wins, ideally best value wins. If a contractor's safe, has a good track record of quality and like meeting schedules and whatnot, then and they're the lowest price, then that's the best. Then you'll get them to work. We'll make sure that they do the work correctly, and they do as well if they're a good contractor, because they want to. So you don't (laughs) actually look at the pipes. You look at the material, and then you guess what the shelf life might be on it? Yeah, yeah, and I mean like... Or not guess, but you use the data. Yeah, you use the data and figure out to the best of your ability what condition they're in, and if they need to be replaced sooner than other pipes. And then... Like when there's a water main break, for example, somebody will dig down. And then you can inspect the pipes at that time. Back in the t- 1910s and 20s, people would install cast iron pipes. Or if you go into an old house, like your house is fairly old, mine is fairly old too. Your stack, like your main plumbing stack, might be cast iron. It was just the material that they had around at that time and is maybe is the cheapest and best. But that's susceptible to corrosion. So over time, and mineral buildup as well, because it sticks to the inside walls of cast iron pipe yeah like over time that type of pipe is something that we want to get out of the ground some of it is okay though some of it, it again it depends on like the geology and what type of how much salt is in the ground some like cast iron pipe is in great condition and we haven't had breaks for a long time in certain areas but generally speaking you will see water main breaks again it's not rocket science in older neighborhoods that were built with older materials. Also, oh, so a majority of the water main breaks are caused from corrosion. A lot of them are, yeah. I don't know about majority. I'd have to check oh, on okay. that. But yeah. Well, that's like, one cause yes. of a water main break Yeah, yeah. is corrosion. What's exactly. another cause? Because we live in like a winter city, it's like frost heave, movement to the ground. That's a big issue. But yeah, like because there are water main breaks with PVC pipes too, but less so than cast iron but yeah like movement differential settlement what's differential settlement so that's just where say for example if you think of a house like if you build something on two slightly different materials say like you build one thing on clay and one thing on sand frost action will impact how stable those two things that you built are and they may move at different rates so if you're installing a pipe in ground like in, in soil that you hope that it's going to be relatively consistent, but you never really know. Like you can't, as you're building stuff, as you're digging up the ground, like you can visually monitor and see what's different, you know, but you don't have like no municipality has the money to like totally excavate out all the original grounds and then put new stuff in. To make it all uniform. Yeah, like we try our best and like we have specifications and all municipalities or most municipalities do, but you just you can't eliminate that risk entirely or that factor entirely. So then when frost goes deeper, say for example, on a colder winter um, on any given year, then that may impact how some geology moves relative to another. There can be other, like we can cause, say if we depressurize pipe in a certain area of the city, like a block of pipe to rehab it, that can cause a water main break two blocks down the line because you just cause a little bit of a pressure difference than that pipe, that old pipe is used to. So it's just like you, you haven't disturbed it for 50, 60 years. It's running at like city pressure, like 70, 80 PSI, whatever it is, and you suddenly cause like a, a little jump or a little decrease in the pressure then that can impact like the stability of a joint of pipe and there's some areas of the city like we've dug up pipe before that was literally had holes in it the cast iron pipe had holes but there was the the ground around the pipe was clay so that coming back to that impermeable material so it was kind of holding everything together the clay sealed it up the clay sealed the pipe so there wasn't a water main break but then you know, we get into close to that area with construction or whatever it may be, or there's whatever, like some frost action that's happens throughout the winter. And then you dig up that pipe, that break. And then like, you know, a pipe, a pipe length away, you see this pipe that has a hole in it. It's just like, that wasn't part of the break. that was there and it was just being held together somehow. So yeah, yeah it's kind of crazy. It's just stuff stays in the ground for close to a hundred years and then, and as long as it's still and, and the was, ground is helping it too. Yeah. You get into those weird scenarios. Yeah. I don't know how common that is. I've only seen it once, but yeah. Hey, in your, crazy. in your time, you've seen it. Yeah. So then sometimes when you depressure to actually fix somewhere, it could cause a ripple effect down the line. Yep. Yeah, exactly. What have you seen for big ripple effects? So like before you isolate a water main to, to rehab it, you need to depressurize it. So you have to close some valves so that there's no water flowing through those pipes. So you'll usually inspect those valves and make sure that they're operating okay before you actually go in and do the work. But let's say by closing those valves, you cause a water main break to happen like a block down the road to fix that water main break you have to close a few other valves further down the line and this happens all the time in the winter like you find valves that are inoperable or just weren't working because we don't have time or resources to check all of them all the time on like an annual basis so you'll find something that doesn't work so you'll need to go like a block further because there's usually valves every block you go block further try and close that one so you can actually work on the main on the water main repair the water main break. Say that one doesn't work, then you got to go down the line again. And then suddenly you got 3 blocks out they- of water in the winter or whatever the case may be and it's like super cold and people need water and there's like a level of service that the city's supposed to provide but it's becomes difficult. Yeah, but it's and- out of your control. Yeah. So then you got like, you know, those potable water units that we bring out that the city brings out. Um, You know, you, I think sometimes the city's paid for water, like bottled water. You know, we'll tell people to fill their bathtubs in advance of work, say if there's like some sort of an emergency, so they at least have drinkable water or something to do the dishes. Yeah, you know, you give them notice prior. Yeah, ideally. But then, like, if there's a water main break, There's no notice. It's it's an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. How accessible are the, those valves you're talking about? They're, they're on surface. So it's like, so it's just a piece of metal essentially that's on surface that extends down to the water main. So 10 feet down. And then you just have this key thing, like a pretty big key, like this big. And then you put it on top of the metal oh, thing so it's and a you turn two, it. It's pretty much a two and a half foot long key to yeah. give you the leverage to turn. Exactly. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. So where's the valve then? How do you access it? It's just has. there's a little cap. It's like about six inches diameter. Oh, that's what those things are. Yeah. Every block. Yeah. You'll be able to find them. You'll notice every single one now when you're taking your kids over a walk. That's awesome. So if you take the lid off, you shouldn't do that. But if you take the lid off, there's like this little square key down there and you can just, you stick the thing in and you turn it and then it closes and opens the valve yeah it's pretty simple right yeah again it's all simple it's but just like we never know to look info. for it or yeah. i never so that yeah they're usually at the end of each block just a is it perf- on the sidewalk or in the street so it depends usually it's in the street it's wherever the water main is so most water mains are in the street but there's some that are again like depending on how somebody was building a subdivision back in the day or building an area of the neighbor of the city back in the day maybe for whatever reason they put the water main or the sewer main on like off to the side of the city right away like not in the middle like it's never going to be in the middle perfectly but usually they're in the street okay you try not to have it on under the sidewalk yeah what's the reasoning for not having it under the sidewalk uh just more expensive to replace like you don't want to dig up concrete concrete is generally speaking more expensive and then it's going to have more of an impact on like pedestrians and stuff and then if it's in like city property or like personal private property doesn't it's not at the sidewalk it's usually a couple feet back from the sidewalk and a lot of people don't know that but it's to avoid people like um digging up people's yards too it's just more accessible if it's in the road generally speaking yeah yeah and then less impact on people walking everything else yeah i gotcha yeah So what do you normally deal with now? A lot of it is customer service, to be honest, throughout the summer. Yeah, a lot of it is. Yeah, yeah, because people have complaints and yeah, like if the customer service center can't answer them, then they'll come to like the people like me and then we'll just try and figure it out. What's a normal complaint? I suppose they would just be impact related. So somebody can't get their car to the driveway or the contractors or city crews been around their house for a long time. And they're just getting tired of construction. I would say that's the majority of it. Like maybe they just didn't know, like the level, their expectation of what the project was is different from what the reality reality is. is. And so I know like the city and certain municipalities are trying to get better at communicating that and like educating people through the website and construction notices and things like that. But yeah, you're never going to hit everybody, right? Yeah. You're never going to... So what are you normally setting up for? If, for example, a road is being... Like a water main is being reconstructed or a road is being rebuilt, like you'll try to communicate to all the people who will be affected by that that they're not going to have access to their driveways, say, for a week or two. So you need to make sure that they have adequate notice to either put their vehicle somewhere else or just not use their vehicle. So that's the thing. It's like if you don't... If somebody doesn't read what the city delivers to them or doesn't know check on the website. They, for whatever reason, don't know that the project is happening. They're going to be the ones that complain. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, so you guys deliver a written notice and then there's also on the website they can check. Yeah. Yeah. There's a map. Yeah. Not a lot of people know about it, but you go you can Google it. You can find it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's good <laughs> to it's, check it out just in case. Yeah. So, but it's like that education part, you know what I mean? So it's like, you got to get the word out there and let people know that they need to Google and check out because schedules change. That's another issue. Or if like a big one is collections, like people love getting their garbage bins collected. Like for sure. If there's a missed collection, like people hate that hardcore. Yeah. So people complain about that a lot and you can't just like, it's not as simple as just like sending another truck out. If there's a, if a road is closed, and you're supposed to put your bins out. Somebody needs to move those bins, like all the bins, somewhere else, so that the the collections vehicle can get them. So that means the contractor who somebody has to do it. But if they forget, what happens? Like what if it was raining that day? Nobody's on site. They're at home. Like it's a rain day. Oh, we gotta move the bins. That's gonna take us like two hours. We gotta move like fifty bins. Whoops, forgot. And right. then it's like okay, like my bin is full of like, it's overflowing. Like I got five kids, 30 diapers, whatever. That's like a legitimate complaint, you know? So what do you guys do to address that? More or less a case by case basis, but we're trying to come down to like a, a process. So it's like, if a collection is missed, it's going to be collected on the next Wednesday. So you got to survive another week without emptying your bin. But if it happens, if the missed collection happens on a Tuesday... It'll come tomorrow. Oh, yeah. really? So yeah. it has to be on that the Wednesdays your catch up day, kind of. Yeah, and it depends on the on the year too. You know what I mean? It's like because last year we had more staff, and we could send a, a truck out willy nilly. We could be like, "Hey, you forgot to to whoever was supposed to move the bins." We could be like, "Hey, you forgot to do that. Can you move the bins to the pickup location?" Then you call the truck. You'd be like, "Hey, can you come out in an hour? They'll be ready." But this year, like, there's a labor shortage generally speaking everywhere because of all the mining and oil and gas activities like cycling back in throughout all of Canada and like Saskatchewan plus there's lots of people moving into town like for, like there's a lot of Ukrainian immigrants whoever else coming right so it's like you know, all these factors impact the labor market so then we have less drivers and less collection staff so we can't do that this year so now we got to be like okay we got to do it once a week and that's it and that's our answer. And it's a standard answer at least. So maybe people get used to it. Right. Because yeah. they'll know it's yeah. that next Wednesday. Yeah. And you have a solution. It's just not yeah. the most ideal for everybody. But at least it's consistent. Yeah. And so it, it's like you have something in place yeah. instead of we'll call you yeah. when we get there. Whereas before it's just like, uh okay, let's figure something out. Like we'll make some calls and we'll we'll do it, you know? Whereas when, now hopefully it's like, yep, next Wednesday. When did you guys start standardizing that? like last week <laughs> yeah it's it, it's always changing but yeah we're like we try to like the goal is to maintain the level of service right so the quicker that you can get it emptied the better to maintain that level of service but mistakes happen and construction just impacts things in the real world so I think this might be the best solution. We'll see what happens. Oh. Yeah. What surprised you when you started doing the roadways work? I would say just how passionate people can be about, well, not only garbage pickup, but just like how passionate they are about their neighborhood, which is cool actually, because like the a lot of like complaints are rooted in like, they just want to have like a nice area to live in. And when something is disrupting that, it disrupts like their normal routine. People don't like that. So it was surprising and not surprising, but it's just like, I was like, wow, you guys like really like you hammer on people. Like some people hammer on people day in, day out, like complain, complain, complain. But it's like coming from a place of like, because they care and maybe they're bored a little bit. Depends if they're tired, then they have more time yeah. on their hands. But. Or maybe they're, they've worked all week and they want a little bit of quiet or something. Yeah, yeah. They're pissed. Yeah. And like... If work is happening, say, for example, outside noise bylaw hours, like people don't, contractors or like city crews don't normally do that. But let's say you're trying to get a good sleep. You had a night shift and, or you're just trying to get a good sleep and there you hear backup beepers at 6.30 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. Like that's going to piss you off. There's so many different variables, you know, it's like, yeah, and so- some people know a lot. Like some people will know like, and I don't know every solution about like, something as simple as a sidewalk or a road right or like drainage but somebody who lives in that area is probably going to know to a pretty good idea or standard of what a good solution might be so you can use that to your advantage as well well really so what's a solution you've been presented well there is this there's a drainage issue you see you know all those tunnels that go underneath circle drive those like steel tunnels oh yeah yeah arguably like very not safe they're not But there's one tunnel that floods every spring. And so I met the guy who was complaining to the city about it and met him out there. And he was a reasonable guy, just a teacher at uh, a school. And I was like, well, what do you think? Like, I kind of knew what we needed to do, but I was like, what do you think would solve this? And he had like this step-by-step approach to what he thought needed to be done. And I'd say it was like 90% Like, we're going to try 90% of what he suggested. So he knew. Like, he was a smart guy, and he was a reasonable guy. He just... He saw a safety issue, and there was a significant safety issue, and there is, at this particular tunnel due to flooding, due to, like, drainage and ice buildup. And, yeah, I think we're going to do more or less what he suggested. What do you have to do to fix that? Generally speaking, it's, like, regrading the area, you know? So it's, like... Make sure it doesn't slope into that tunnel. Yeah. So it's, like... (laughs) Again, it's like, it's not rocket science, right? It's pretty simple. It's like the water's going in there. We don't want it to go in there anymore. So you make the hill go the other way. So (laughs) yeah, like there's a drain in the area, but there's just stuff. There's concrete and sidewalk that's not graded correctly. So we need to fix that. But then the more complicated areas, like in this tunnel, like there's some water that comes down the hill and then like makes its way into the tunnel, but you can't mess with the tunnel. It's a structure so you can't cut into it easily anyways. That's going to cost a lot of money. So you need to figure out essentially you can just like add some pavements or some concrete in the tunnel without disrupting the structure and get water to go the other way. As soon as you try to figure out a solution with by just like adding a little bit of concrete here and adding adding a little bit of pavement here it's it's like a it's not an exact science. We do our best with the survey equipment and everything and rods and levels and all that. But, and we'll get it right, of course. But. Yeah. Cause yeah. you don't know all the variables you're dealing with. Yeah. It's tough with like geology and amount of snow melt. And then you throw maintenance into the mix and like where people pile snow. Right. Like, should they pile snow there? Should they not? You know, it's like. You have to take yeah. everything into account. Yeah. And then it's like. People are supposed to shovel their walks and keep ice off the sidewalks, but some people do and some people don't. And some people think that that's just the city's problem. Like if, say, for example, like over the years, a sidewalk a sidewalk's supposed to drain onto the street, but over the years things settle. And let's say it's flat and there's just a pond that forms there and a little bit of ice and causes a safety issue. Through a lot of people's eyes, like that should be a city problem, but there's so many other worse sidewalks that are causing worse safety issues. So we again you come back to the priority list, you gotta address those first. And then maybe one day we can come back and replace a panel that's in perfectly good shape, but it's just flat and holding a little bit of water. But the homeowner as per bylaw needs to be cleaning that off and needs to be like salting it and scraping the ice off. From one's perspective, it doesn't seem fair. It seems like a city problem. And it is like it's an issue that we need to address, like the city staff. But it's so far down the priority list in terms of safety perspectives. It's covered by the bylaw. People need to do their part too. So it's kind of like... Yeah, yeah. you can't just wait for somebody to save you when you can do something. Yeah. If it's extreme and there's like a big crack in the sidewalk and kids are tripping on it, then obviously the city needs to address it. But if it's something that can be salted, like you salt and have to shovel your walkway, you need to do that with your sidewalk too. So it's like, that's why there's the bylaw. Yeah. So it's on one hand, it's like you need to do what the bylaw says. On the other hand, it's like, but was the bylaw written so that the city could save taxpayer money? Does the city have all the resources to shovel all the sidewalks in the city? No. Well, they do, but our taxes will go up. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it's all about, it comes back to the balance of like level of service per tax dollar. The past couple winters, the city's plowed all the roads or pretty much all residential roads, but that costs more money too. So taxes are going to go up. Like if you do that every year. But then you do it two years in a row or three years in a row, whatever it was, people get used to that. They're like, what? You, you plowed all the residential streets last year. Why aren't you doing it this year? It's just like too much money. We need to build up that surplus again. Yeah. And it didn't snow as much. So it's like we got hit with two big snow events over the past like two or three years. So somebody made the decision to plow all the residential roads. And I don't think it was a bad decision. Yeah. You just do what they tell you to do. Yeah. You can't change everything. Right. But like one year, I believe the city plowed the roads and then left the snow on the side of the roads. And then I think this past year we plowed the roads and then took the snow away. So there's a debate about that too, right? Because it's like, there's a very significant difference in cost between those two methods. You can send a grader up a street, plow the road, get the snow off to the side of the road. There's going to be parking issues and complaints for the whole winter, but it costs a lot of money to truck all of that snow out. With right. Fuel. Cause you have to transport it to the dumping depot. Yeah. With fuel costs high and everything else, inflation, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. It's like, again, it's like, that's that fine balance. You're on that tightrope. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's simple stuff, right? But it's just so many different things piled well, on it's to each simple, other. But it's such a large scale that you're dealing with. Yeah. So what's yeah. the biggest problem you've had to solve? Well, one time we had to, there's something called a force main, which essentially pumps sewage, from a low point to a high point throughout the city. So a project that I was managing, we had to extend that, the line. So we had to tie into a live force main essentially with sewage flowing into it, but it doesn't always flow sewage. It's like when the tank of sewage gets high enough then the pump turns on and it pumps the stuff through the force main, through the pipe. So we had to wait for a perfect window to when the pump was off. So like the pump turned on, pump the sewage, And then as soon as it turned off and the sewage stopped flowing, then that was our window to tie into it. But we had like an eight minute window. So we had some guy like down in the like the tank area of the lift station on a radio being like, okay, yeah, we got about five minutes. Like we did a few cycles at low peak time, like at low sewage time, like when people were at work or sleeping or whatever it was. And he was timing it. We're like, okay, it's yeah, like eight minutes between pump cycles. So it's like, okay, it looks like we got eight minutes to do this work. That's our window. And so he was down there. It's like, Kate pumps her off. Start like you open up the pipe so we can tie into it. So we had to like take off a gasket, then connect the pipe and then tighten all the bolts is essentially what we needed to do in an eight minute period. But then the guy on the radio was like, ah, it's filling up a little bit quicker than usual. I think we got like five and a half minutes. And then, so the people down in the pit were like, oh no, but So they worked a bit quicker than usual. Then they did it and it was fine. And nobody got hurt or got exposed to like biohazard stuff, but it was like definitely stressful. That's, that's one thing that I can think of down to the wire. Yeah. How do you handle that type of stress? Um, I mean the crews are good crews, you know what I mean? So like the city will try to hire good crews and good contractors. And if they're good at their job, it's, pretty easy for me but i mean i just need to make sure that every, everything is coordinated in advance you know what i mean it's like need to make sure that we actually had somebody at the lift station watching the cycle time and making sure that this is our window to do it more planning equals generally less stress in the future you know? Yeah, like doing my future self a, a solid by putting in a bit more work now <laughs> how many people do you normally have to coordinate like if you're managing a project, it, would, it might be like 10 to 20 like different stakeholders, like internally and externally, whether it's like other people within the city or contractors or, you know, like regulatory agencies, perhaps like Ministry of Environment, you might have to deal with them from time to time like if there's some sort of like a hydrocarbon spill or something or you encounter hydrocarbons like digging next to a gas station or something like an abandoned gas station yeah there could be so many different variables you might have to deal with a bunch of people plus residents so what do you do to handle all these people you have to deal with Mm, just make lists (laughs) no I mean you just yeah like honestly like it, it can be as simple as a list yeah just like at the beginning of a day but that's kind of project management you know it's like prioritizing tasks and then managing expectations like that's what that's like what a project manager should do you know it's like because nothing is ever going to go according to plan or like stuff is always going to be over budget pretty much stuff is always going to be beyond schedule like i'm kind of joking but it's like inflation goes up every year right it's three percent every year so usually you're like you're going to be lucky if you're on budget but it's like managing that expectation of people who are giving you the money to do it, whether it's private or public money. Like the city is perfectly on budget every time, of course. No, I'm just kidding. But it's just like, it's managing those expectations and oh, having good reasons to go over budget. Like say something that you encountered something that was an unknown. What have you found that's unknown? Uh, well, you can encounter like in Saskatchewan, it'll be less common, but you can, you can encounter like... Like, we thought we found human bones one time. You needed to, like, call the archaeological people in to figure out what was up. And I think they ended up being chicken bones or something. But you needed to stop work to make sure that you knew what you were dealing with. And you can find vaults, like, not, like, gold, like, treasure vaults or anything. Like, it's boring. But, like, an old vault underneath the ground that's abandoned. But you're expecting to dig through, like, soft ground to install something. And suddenly there's, like, a bunch of concrete... So that slows you down by like a week or two weeks and adds like tens of thousand dollars to the, to the project cost. You find underground vaults. Yeah. Like usually it's like old, like say railway vaults or something, or like some company put a vault in like 50 years ago to put like utilities in or something and needed to pour concrete around it for whatever reason. So there could be so many different reasons. What do you mean, Put utilities in. What are, what are... So like underground utilities. So like, communications lines for example like you know like these days we have internet or phone lines like back in the day it might might have been i don't know back when they're first putting phones using phones maybe they had like a larger like center to have a bunch of like cables so they needed a vault to store it underground so that's why they had it so that it can still be accessed yes so it could be accessed and somebody could go work on those lines and still keep it safe that's a hypothetical i don't know if that was actually the case but yeah you can find like god knows what underground and it's just not documented accurately sometimes like if it was built in the 1910s or 20s it's like who knows what's down there old trolley lines like we have pretty good maps of where the old trolley lines in saskatoon are but there's been instances where you dig into the ground and then you're like oh there's a trolley line here What's the trolley line? So back in like the 50s and 60s or maybe before that, 40s, Saskatoon instead of buses, like they had buses, but they also had trolleys on, which were just like trains going down. I think there's trolleys on Broadway. There's a trolley track line on like downtown. There's a trolley line on 22nd, I think. There's a map. You can Google it. Go, Go Google Lake historical trolley line, Saskatoon. And then it'll show the lines of where these trolleys ran. But that's where they were. They're not there anymore. That's where they were. And in some cases, the trolley lines were removed. And you just built a brand new road. But in some cases, you just pour, you just paved over the trolley lines. And then they are forgotten about for 50 years. And then you run into it. and You got to deal with it now. Yeah. So you dig down into the road and you find this stuff. And you're like, oh, I thought that was removed. The record said it was removed. Well, it wasn't. That slows you down. That, and, add, that adds extra costs. And whoever is responsible is 50 years scot-free. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> or their dad or something, yeah. yeah right. They, they're, they're, like, you're not going to track whoever did that down. No, not at all. It's just like you just got to deal with it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So there's so many different examples like that, so many different scenarios. So that's why I say it's like I'm kind of joking that nothing will ever be like perfectly on budget and go por- perfectly according to plan. But it's just telling people and communi- communicating with people along the way that these things are happening so that they're not surprised, like at the end, it's still going to be a surprise when these things are found. But if you just like, if you don't tell anybody, let's say for example, like worst case scenario that you found the trolley tracks and then they come to you like a week or two later, they're like, Hey, are we still on track to be on schedule? And we're like, Oh no, we found some trolley tracks two weeks ago. They're like, wow, well, why didn't she tell me? They're like, that's not managing expectations properly. Oh, so you manage expectations by keeping people informed. That's one of the ways, yeah. Or even at the front end, just be like, listen, like we're, there's going to be unknowns that we encounter. And depending on what type of construction project you're building, like you're going to build in some sort of contingency to, to make sure that you can manage all those unknowns So you properly. try to put a buffer in. Yeah. But sometimes that buffer gets wiped out. Sometimes, yeah. But something. but you do have that buffer in place. So it's like you have your you hope that you have your your budget that's met or your costs that are controlled, but you do have that buffer in place. So you're still going over budget if you eat into that buffer, but it's at least it's there. At least you have the money. That's what it's made for. Yeah. 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 So is there anything I haven't asked you? I don't think so. I think that's you know, that's most of it. Yeah. All right yeah. now, well then should we call it? Sure. Yeah, that's good. Yeah.